Last summer, our kids decided they wanted to have their own version of the Olympics, complete with bike and scooter races all around the cul-de-sac. Maybe you've seen kids do this sort of thing before, but for one of the particular races, they spent an entire day with sidewalk chalk drawing out this course around the cul-de-sac and, and down the road, and they pulled in a couple of neighborhoods, and you can imagine the amount of sidewalk chalk we went through as they took, it was literally six hours with four or five kids constantly drawing the entire time minus their break for lunch. It was elaborate and epic. And they wanted us to come out and get our phone out and do little time trials so they could see who would be the fastest going around. And as I began to survey the landscape, I recognized we had a problem. See, as long as they were in the cul-de-sac, it was a fine little course. But they got out of the cul-de-sac and started to go down the bigger road where cars would come zipping by. And as we're focused on beating our sister's record while on our scooter, we were going to be vulnerable there. And then they came back and these, this course like wrapped tightly around cars that were parked on the street. I recognized we're either going to hit the car and end up with an insurance claim I didn't want or swerve to miss the car and end up at the emergency room with a bill I didn't want and we were going to have problems however you sliced it. So I had to make a modification. We had to step in and change their plan. Right? This was not going to work as it was. And of course, as I said, we've got to change this plan that you spent the last six hours crafting. They automatically thought I was the fun police. Dad, why do you have to stop all of the fun here? You see, I was stepping in and it felt like thwarting their plans and they thought it was my judgment against them, but it was actually my mercy to protect them. And what we see here in the, in the story of Babel in Genesis 11 is a little bit similar to the, the story, the parable I just told you of sorts, where many times when God thwarts our plans, like I had to thwart my daughter's plans, it felt like judgment. But in many ways, it's his mercy to protect us from ourselves, that our wisdom is not quite as wise as we think it is. Right? And so if you were to take the whole sermon and boil it down to a sentence, here's what it would be. You see it on the screen. God mercifully thwarts our plans, but his marvelous plan cannot be thwarted. That's what we'll see. God mercifully thwarts our plans, but his marvelous plan cannot be thwarted. And our outline to, to see that will be two simple points. One, we'll just look at what we call the Tower of Babel. And then the second point will be about another tower that you may not have necessarily identified as Steve read, and we'll get to that in a moment but let me start with the first point, the Tower of Babel, which we're calling a monument to human pride. A monument to human pride. Throughout verses 1 through 9, the first thing, look back at your copy of God's Word in verses 1 and 2, you see pride being foreshadowed. Pride being foreshadowed. Verse 1, we read, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. How is pride foreshadowed there? Well, we'll get to sort of develop that, but there's the, the language is all being spoken. They've come to this one place. It seems that not much time has passed since the flood. No one has dispersed yet. And there's a whole bunch of archaeological digs that we've seen through the Sumerian peoples that confirm that the peoples of the earth were gathered speaking a single language, 
so that what is testified to in the Bible is true. We see other sources continually affirming and reaffirming, giving us confidence in the word of God that what it tells us is true, is right, can be relied upon. Now, the ESV translates that phrase, they were migrating from the east. It may not be the most helpful way of translating that. The, the New American Standard says it just a touch different. It says that they, were moved, they journeyed east. Or the NIV says they journeyed eastward. They were moving towards the east is sort of the idea. And throughout the book of Genesis, whenever you see this phrase moving to the east, it's an idea that there are bad decisions being made. There's wicked decisions being made. So for example, when Adam and Eve sin and God kicks them out of the garden, Genesis 3:24, here's what we read. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, to the, the east is where they went because of their bad decisions. Or in Genesis 4, after Cain killed Abel, what do we read there? We read, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. After his bad decisions, he moved east. He was moved there by God. Or if we were to skip past Genesis 11, where we are this week, look ahead a bit, when uh, Abraham and Lot are figuring out where to go, they're going to divide up the land, Lot's going to move to the east, read it there, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, which later we would know he makes his way to Sodom and Gomorrah, wicked and perverse cities, and so throughout we see this, this foreshadowing of when they're, when they're journeying eastward, this is not good. We're doing things our way, not God's way. Kind of the idea here of Genesis all throughout when you see the east being referenced. So there's a foreshadowing of pride. And then after it's foreshadowed, pride shows up and is displayed in just completely explicit terms. Uh, look back at verse 4 with me where we can see this. Then the people said, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Pride is on display here, right? In, in three simple ways, or maybe not simple, but at least three significant ways. They're, they're seeking God-like status. Let me build my way up to God. This tower will have its heights up in the heavens. Babel itself means the gate of God. We want to get up to the gate of God. We want to build our way to heaven. They're seeking complete autonomy, that they can be the master of their faith. They can be the commander of their soul. They can write their own script. They can make their own way. They want the autonomy to rule and to reign as God does. But they also want to make a name for themselves. They want to be famous. They want to build a, something that will be a constant memorial to who they are. The people will remember them. Maybe we think of, of various space endeavors this way, where we say, hey, I want to make a name for myself. I want to build a memorial to me that will never be forgotten. Over spring break, we went over to the city of St. Louis, and we saw the arch, and there was all sorts of um, sort of historical data about the Missourians building this arch so they could have a, a testimony to say, as people go west, they'll always remember us and our innovative spirit. You just go down to Lucas Oil Stadium, you'll see a, a Peyton Manning statue there. 
We want to build these memorials so that people will remember how great we are. And yet it's interesting, despite their desire for God-like status and complete autonomy, despite their desire to be famous and remembered and have a great reputation, they're being driven, we're told, by fear and anxiety. Because in verse 4, they say, lest we be dispersed. They put a strong face on it. Yeah, we're going to show everybody how great we are. But they're afraid of what would happen if they're dispersed. Serves as a reminder to us that if you don't have the appropriate fear of God, you'll always be driven by fear of something else. That's why Philippians 4 says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, bring your request to God. It says, don't be anxious, and what's the path to not being anxious and driven by my fears is to have an appropriate fear of God and bring these concerning things to the God of the universe who can actually do something about it. And I ground my fears in a fear of God who can actually intervene on my behalf. You see, fearing man's opinion over God's opinion always leads to paralysis because the foundation of our life is no longer secure. The house of our life is unstable and we cannot proceed. So a good question for us to ask as we're thinking about our own anxieties is to simply say, where am I fearing man more than God? I feel that those anxious tendencies start to bubble up. I start to feel gripped by my fears. And just to pause, take a breath, and ask myself, where am I fearing man more than God? So we, we zoom out on the story just a little bit, and we see the people of Babel seeking this godlike status and complete autonomy. They're trying to make their own name great, but in the midst of it, they're being governed by their fears and their anxieties. And we see these same ideas, these same concepts being manifested all over the place in our culture today. Our country artist Russell Dickerson in his song Blue Tacoma says, if heaven is anywhere, it's right here. We've made our way up to heaven. We've built this paradise in this spot right here. Or perhaps you remember Fort Minor's hit song, Remember the Name. Right? The, the, the basic premise of the song is, you could call my successes whatever you want, but the number one thing is that you remember my name. That's what I'm after here. There was a Christian, Christian podcast I was listening to a couple of months ago, and literally the first line of the interview, the person being interviewed said, I realized all my life I'd been doubting my own greatness. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> but, but this is all over the place, right? I'm sure you could think of your own examples. And what's often, uh, what's often harder for us to see, but certainly more important for us to see, is that we all have Babylonian hearts. We all do. And of course you can think of somebody who's more Babylonian than you, who's more narcissistic than you, who's more arrogant than you, as you've just thought of that person, now let their memory depart your mind and think back on yourself here. Uh, it was just this week, I, I picked up my daughter Grace from preschool, she's four, and I said, Grace, how was your how was your day at preschool? And she says, ah, I wasn't very good, Dad. I said, well, why not, honey? And she said, I didn't get to write my name enough times today. <laughs> she wants to see her own name be written down. 
Right? And, and, and this is, you know, the, the places you can go to eat in Brownsburg know this too. I've noticed at Culver's and at Starbucks, you go through the drive through line, and after you've given the whole order, they say, can, can I get a name for the order? You tell them your name. But it has absolutely no material value for them getting their order to you. It's just that you feel better about yourself by saying your name, and if you feel better about yourself, maybe you're likely to come back there as this sort of psychological element in the sales job going on. We all have Babylonian hearts that want to see our own name as great. C.J. Mahaney, in his excellent book on humility, I would highly commend this to you. I've been reading this uh, the last couple of weeks, just sort of devotional material in the mornings after I read my Bible. Uh, I, I don't think we have it in the bookstore, but hop on Amazon. His book titled Humility is fantastic. Uh, but listen to how he describes this. He says, the sad fact is that none of us are immune to the logic-defying, blinding effects of pride. Though it shows up in different forms and to differing degrees, it infects us all. The real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart, it's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. So, so at a starting point, if we ask ourselves, am I proud, we've already gotten off in the wrong direction. That, that's the wrong question. The right question is, where is pride showing up in my life? Where is it at in my heart that hasn't manifested itself in an outward behavior, and I need to go and do the hard, difficult work by the grace of God of killing pride and cultivating humility? You say, Justin, how, how do I see this? How would I know this is happening in my life? Because as hard as it is for us to see it in our own lives, it's really rare and really difficult for others to come and say, I perceive you to be a very proud person. Like that feels like a very arrogant thing for any of us to say, which makes it hard for us to see it in our own hearts. And what I'd like to suggest is that our off-the-cuff impulses, you know what those are, right? You just, you just sort of feel something intuitively. Our off-the-cuff impulses provide a window into the pride of our hearts. And so as uncomfortable as it may be, we'd be wise to pause and look through the window of these off-the-cuff impulses and consider the pride in our own hearts. See, pride shows up in an impulse of irritation. Maybe you know that impulse as well as I do. You think, quit wasting my time, quit saying dumb stuff, or quit making such foolish decisions. That's the, the impulse in essence saying, my time is more valuable than yours, I'm more intelligent than you, and I'd never be as foolish as you. You hear the pride when you say it out loud. Of course, it doesn't feel that way in the moment. That's what's underneath it. Pride shows up in an impulse of jealousy. When you hear somebody else praised, and all you can think about is the ways that they've not measured up, they've not done as well as they could have or should have, and don't deserve that praise, that's, that's your pride meter going off. Ding, 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 yep, there's the pride in my heart. Or if it's really difficult for you to give substantive praise to others, another indicator. Here's that, that impulse of jealousy. Yeah, there's pride in my heart. Pride shows up in an impulse, an off-the-cuff impulse of self-protection, where you don't really lie about what happened, you just share the details that make you look best. When you're with a friend, you, you share that you're going through a season of busyness and you ask for prayer for time management when you ought to be confessing the sin of laziness. Right? Just kind of shape it in a way that makes me look better. It's the same thing as the Babylonians here. 
Because underneath pride is this desire to be seen as great. In essence, what it does is it misrepresents who we are, and it also misrepresents who God is. In other words, it points to our pseudo-greatness and tries to make it look bigger, and by so doing, minimizes God's actual greatness. You elevate the smaller thing and minimize the greater thing. This is why theologian John Calvin, some 500 years ago, would write, no one ever attains clear knowledge of self unless he's first gazed upon the face of the Lord. You have to see God rightly for who he is so that you can see who you are and who you are not. And so what we see coming up in Genesis 11 is that God starts to show us who he is because we can't see ourselves rightly until we see him And so in verse five, we start to see this pride that was on display begin to be confronted. Look back at your copy of God's word with me. Genesis 11, five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord came down. We immediately see God's confrontation of pride is as a loving father, not as some sort of a rival. That's critical that we recognize that. If you're taking notes, I'd invite you to write that down. We'll come back to that. That God confronts pride as a loving father, not as a rival. Now, it says, the Lord came down. Let me give you a $2.50 term here to think about that. It's this. It's called an anthropomorphism. I told you it was a $2.50 term. It means that you give a human characteristic to God. In other words, God didn't actually have to come down. He knew what was going on. (laughs) There's a thick irony that we're supposed to see. It's not like God was coming down to gain knowledge. No, instead, there's a bit of sarcasm here that's supposed to make us laugh, where these people think they've built this great tower, and it's so big, and he says, oh, that tower is so big. It's going to take me a while to get down to see it, but uh, I'm really proud of you guys. Good job. It's, It's like it's like there's an anthill being built, and the ants, if they could talk, are saying, come see how enormous my anthill is. And you're thinking, it's going to take me a while to get down there and go see what's going on. There's a couple of word plays embedded in God's confrontation that we sometimes would miss in the English. A second ago, we said that the, the people of Babel said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. That word name in the Hebrew is the, same, is the word Shem. Now, Shem, if you'll just look at your copy of God's word, there's likely a heading between verses nine and 10 that say Shem's descendants. That's where Abraham would come from and then Jesus would come from, ultimately. And so, so in this word play, the people of Babel are saying, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a Shem for ourselves. And God is saying, oh, you don't need to do that. Like, you try and make your own name. I've already got it all taken care of. I'm confronting you as a loving father saying, I've already got it covered. Maybe your kid, dads, if you haven't made Mother's Day plans, maybe you should quickly. You can get your phone out and get reservations made. But maybe your kids came to you, came running to, Dad, we gotta make plans, we gotta make plans, we gotta get something figured out. And you said, I've already got it covered. In essence, that's what's happening here. There's another one, though. This word babble, babble, means the gate of God. We already said that. That's the definition of the word. But it has a resemblance in the way it sounds to another Hebrew word, balal. Babel, balal. Do you know what balal means? Confusion. And so babel means the gate of God. 
But as you say that in Hebrew, it sounds like confusion. In other words, what the, the point is, the wordplay that's going on is when you try to build your way to the gate of God and do it your way, all you're going to get is confusion. It's not going to work. It's are these subtle ways that God intervenes and begins to confront the pride as a loving father and not as a rival. We continue, look back at verse six. Let me read verses six through nine and we see more of God's confrontation. We read, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. See, we, got, we see God intervening and mercifully thwarting their plans. If you could insert yourself into a family of mice, you might envision a conversation where a child that's a mouse, a baby mouse, goes and says to their parents, I found this great spot of cheese. Come, let me show you the cheese I found. And what do the parents mercifully do? Intervene and thwart their plans and say, you might get the cheese, but it's actually not gonna be good for you. In a sense, God comes down and says, you're gonna succeed in this, but it's not going to be good for you. So I will mercifully thwart your plans because you don't know what's best for you. See, this can be true of our moral pursuits and our immoral pursuits that our success can be our greatest threat. Our success can be our greatest threat because we begin to think that we can do things our way and we don't need God or we think that our moral behavior is because of ourselves and success in that way can be a major threat. Self-righteousness can be deadly. It's another way of saying that. That is to say that holiness is more about dependence on Christ than it is my own moral behavior. Let me say that again. Holiness is more about dependence on Christ than it is my own moral behavior. And dependence on Christ will certainly lead to moral behavior. It's not to say that isn't important. That's incredibly important. Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But it's a dependence upon Christ that grounds that and a transformed life flows out of that. Sometimes in the way we speak of our spirituality, I wonder if our, the, our language that we use, our verbiage needs to be adjusted to more appropriately reflect this. Perhaps you've thought, maybe even said out loud, I was able to resist sin. I was able to hold my tongue. I was able to extend grace to that difficult person. That's not to say that you didn't resist sin, hold your tongue, or extend grace. But in 2 Timothy 4, Paul would show us a slightly different model of how to speak of that which we do for the Lord. Listen to what he said. He says, but the Lord stood by me, and the Lord strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
He says, the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me. And yes, it was through me. Yes, I had to exert myself and work to fulfill the ministry he'd given me. But the Lord strengthened me. The Lord stood by me. And this starts to get to the point of why it's so important that we see God's confrontation as a loving father and not as a rival. Because when we don't measure up, it's not if we don't measure up, when we don't measure up, we'll find ourselves in a dilemma. And the reality is you don't confess weakness, you don't confess your sin, you don't confess your confusion about life to a rival. Against a rival, you want to show that you've got it together, you're pretty strong, and you will defeat them. But to a good, loving, kind, merciful father, a gracious father, you do confess these things. So when God mercifully reveals pride in your heart, you need not run. You can know that his arms are open and he's ready to receive you and warmly welcome you back into his arms. When he thwarts your plans, it doesn't feel like mercy. Never feels that way for me. But because I know that he's a merciful father, I know that his thwarting my plans is actually for my good, even if I can't see it right now. That's so critical for us to see. Because the temptation is to think that he's angry, he's distant, he's upset at me, he's looking for an opportunity to beat me up. I know he's not. No, he's not. He's already pursuing you. He's been pursuing you. So when your seemingly perfect plans fail, learn from Babel and see the mercy of God. The right response here then is to actively confess my dependency on Christ. Oh, I need you, I need you every hour, I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Actively confess your dependency But be on the lookout for signs of independence in your life where you're seeking autonomy as those at Babel did. You confess these things to God and also to a close friend. You can ask them, do you see any of these impulses of irritation or jealousy or self-protection in me? Because I want to root out pride. It's so important. The Tower of Babel serves as a monument to human pride. And we've taken a few minutes to, to deep dive that and see what was happening there, how it happens in our life, and what we can do about it. But I told you there was a, a second tower, one that may have been less obvious. It's the Tower of Terah. The Tower of Terah, which we're going to say is a monument to God's redemptive plan. A monument to God's redemptive plan. Now, notice, this isn't, as some of you may have thought, it's not the Tower of Terror. No different tower there. But what we're going to see is that God's plan to redeem his people comes through the line of a man called Terah. We see that down at the bottom of, of Genesis 11. But what Genesis 11, the Genesis 11 genealogy serves to do is it serves to start showing us in God's redemptive plan, no human rebellion can thwart it. It's very similar, this genealogy is very similar to the Genesis 5 genealogy. 
And I'm confident that if, if I gave you an hour to compare the two, you would see this difference pretty quickly, but because we're, we're moving in a different format, it's not a group Bible study in a technical sense, uh, I'll just give it to you. Genesis 11 is different than Genesis 5 in that Genesis 5 mentions the death of each person. Genesis 11 doesn't mention that. Now, it's not because they didn't die. They died, but it's highlighting rather than Genesis 5 saying, here's the results of the fall, Genesis 11 doesn't highlight their death as a way of saying, here is the path to life that's about to be revealed. It's an intentional exclusion of something that actually happens. And so Genesis 1 through 11 sort of concludes here with this genealogy. It's th this section of the Bible has been called primeval history. Some call it the, the prologue to the book of Genesis. And so we'll actually take a break after this sermon from Genesis, pick it up in the fall with Genesis, well, the end of 11 and into 12 as God unveils this plan. But for now, it's important to recognize Genesis 1 through 11 has covered thousands of years. But from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50 only covers four generations. Now that's interesting. It tells us that here in Genesis 11, this genealogy is sort of bookending the first 11 chapters of primeval history, the prologue, and it's starting to pivot and give a transition forward to the path of life. Now, the pattern of the genealogy, you heard Steve read, it's, it's not complex, it's the name, lived so many years, had a son, lived so many other years, had other sons and daughters, over and over and over and over, and then at one key individual, the pattern breaks. So look back with me at verse 24 of Genesis 11. We'll pick up, and I'll read that pattern one time so that the break in the pattern is more obvious for us. Verse 24, we read, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Boom, the pattern breaks. We haven't seen that before. Why is it different? To suggest the path to life will flow through Terah and through Abraham, his son, ultimately all the way to Jesus. This is where life will come from. This is where the blessing will come from. This is where the snake crusher will come from. This is where the substitute son will come from. But for now, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We're stuck with seeing thus far in the Bible, in the first 11 chapters, man's staggering opposition to God's rule and to God's reign. Think back with me, Genesis 1 and 2, man is placed in the ultimate paradise and yet wanted more. It wasn't good enough. And then Genesis 3 and into chapter 4, there are no wicked neighbors around because there are no neighbors around. And yet Cain finds a way to hate his brother and kill him. Keep moving forward. Humanity is judged. The earth is purged. He's given a second chance with a pure land. And Noah's family, the good guys, immediately turn to substance abuse and nudity. It's a continual pattern that's somewhat staggering as you just lay it out in that way. And it wasn't just Noah's family, not this one, because at Babel we see all the people of the earth rejecting what God has told them to do. Even Terah the father of the righteous line that would lead to Abraham. We're told in Joshua 24, Terah was an idolater. 
In other words, you, you lay all of that out. What's it telling us about ourselves that our deepest problems can't be fixed by better circumstances? Because they had the perfect circumstances. And it wasn't enough. Right? So a better boss might be helpful, but ultimately won't be enough. A more supportive spouse might be helpful, but ultimately won't be enough. A better preacher on Sunday morning might be helpful, but ultimately won't be enough. Right? Better friends or better bank account or a better president or a better anything might be helpful, but ultimately won't be enough because resting on those things is like resting in sinking sand. See, better circumstances cannot meet our greatest needs, nor, nor can a second chance meet our greatest need. Because we don't need merely a second chance. We need to be changed into a new person. You see, Jesus came to make spiritually dead people alive, not to be a life coach. Without the transforming power of the gospel in our lives, no second chance will be sufficient. We need to be made into a new person. And yes, the gospel opens up second chances and new opportunities for things that we thought were lost could then be redeemed. But if you pursue the second chance apart from the transforming grace of Jesus Christ, you won't get anywhere. And this is where the gospel is really very countercultural. Because our culture tells us that there are all sort of external problems in the world and the solutions are found inside of us. Right? There, are, there are systems out there that need to be thrown off. There are oppressors out there that need to be done away with. There's all sorts of problems in the external world. And if I'll find myself, my true self, and not be ashamed of my true self, but rise up in my true self, then I can find my own salvation. Yet the gospel says, no, 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 that's totally backwards. The real problems are inside me, and they're inside you. That's where the problems lie, not in the external world most fundamentally, but the solution is not in me. I need an external solution that came not even from this world, but from beyond this world, the person of Jesus Christ who would come and take the problem inside of me and make me into a new person. It's a totally different way of seeing the world around us, but the gospel challenges our culture in profound ways here. We see then that God must intervene and create a new people, a new you, that is, out of nothing. That the path to life, to God's blessing, cannot be dependent upon human activity. Because at every turn, we've botched it. So he's got to enter in and do the work. He broke into the family of Terah while Terah was an idolater and chose Abraham and said, I will bless you and I'll make you a great nation and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by you and you'll receive the blessing that you didn't deserve, wouldn't earn, and could never find on your own. I will bring that to you. He promises to bless all peoples through Abraham and ultimately through the line of Terah, we come down to Jesus the Messiah. And through him, this pattern of primeval history will forever be reversed. Whereas Adam went into the garden and failed the test, well, Jesus would go to the garden of Gethsemane and pass the test and go to the cross on our behalf. Where Cain would hate his brother and kill him and Abel's brother's blood 
or Abel's blood rather, would cry out from the earth for Cain's judgment. So Jesus would come and love not only his brothers, but also his enemies. And his blood would cry out from the ground, not for judgment, but for mercy. Whereas a temporary judgment would come onto the earth in Noah's flood for many months, but would pass away, Jesus would come and absorb all of God's wrath. So this blessing, this path to new life, the redemption could never be thwarted because he did all the work for us. That's really good news. And ultimately, these many languages of Babel, we see them being confused, we see them being dispersed and spread out. They ultimately come full circle in the New Testament. Acts 2, we come to Pentecost. There are people gathered from every nation, Acts 2.5 tells us. And as the gospel is proclaimed, God supernaturally intervenes. And now this message of the gospel that's bringing the plan of redemption that could never be thwarted is heard by people in their own tongues. There's a regathering of the nations. It's a clear reversal of Babel. Whereas mankind had gone his own way, God says, I will now supernaturally intervene and regather you by the blood of the lamb who was slain to purchase, to ransom a people from every tribe and language and nation. Oh, it's beautiful when you see the whole Bible coming together. Like, oh, it's not just random stories here and there. It's one story, one message of redemption. And it forces us to ask, as God is in the process of redeeming this gift of speech, are you participating in the redemption of the gift of speech? Will singing in heaven feel strange to you because you are not used to singing with God's people here? We're just warming up for heaven, guys. We're gonna be doing it for a real long time. Do you make a habit, a habit of seeing evidence of grace in others' lives and pointing it out as a testimony to what God is doing? You can sit around a birthday table, you can sit around a Mother's Day table and say, I appreciate this about you, you do a great job of this, and that's not wrong to do that, but it would be more accurate to say, I see the grace of God in your life in this way. And as Babel has been reversed, I'm going to use the gift of speech to testify to the goodness, the grace of God to redeem every single part of creation. I wonder if you use the gift of speech to tell people who don't yet know Jesus about this plan of redemption. Is that a normal part of your life? God is not redeeming the gift of speech merely for us to float around in our Christian bubbles and subcultures, but to be launched out with a message that will truly change the world. Use the gift that he's given you. Genesis 11, then, on the whole, gives a pretty simple message. You can invest your life in building your own towers, your own monuments to yourself. But God promises that, mercifully, he's going to thwart those plans. They're not going to work. So you can stop now before you get really frustrated about it. You know it's not going to work. You can learn from Genesis 11. You can use your life. You can invest it in building monuments to the greatness of God, to testify to who he is and who Jesus is and his shed blood on the cross to provide forgiveness of sins, to testify to his marvelous plan of redemption. 
Friends, don't spend your life glorying in yourself in your own little anthill. No, that's silliness. Glory in your maker, your gracious father, and your redeeming savior. That's what Genesis 11 tells us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you mercifully will thwart our plans, but that your marvelous plan of redemption can never be thwarted. May we not be duped into the arrogance of building our own kingdoms, monuments to self. May we not be duped into thinking that pride is somebody else's problem. May we not be duped into thinking we are different than the Babylonians. But may, by your grace, you break into our lives as you broke into Terah's line. You broke into the idolaters who were running from you. You showed them your grace. You delivered your blessing. While God, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Helps to see these things, to act on them, to walk in newness of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.